Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth Narrated by John McDonough Chapter 10 Julia, or the First Wrong Step Frequently I find myself taking stock of our congregation at the chapel for the destitute during the singing of the opening hymn and think that few gatherings present such a variety of character. We have very old men and women who have grown grey in the service of Satan, many less advanced in years but old in crime, middle-aged who are only just beginning to think about serious things, others still younger but who think much older than they are, in consequence of the self-imposed hardships through which they have had to pass. We have a goodly number of the staid and orderly, but very poor, some who have seen better days, and who seem thankful for such a shelter, some who come for a few services only, and some only once, whose brown faces and seedy garments indicate their restless characters. These brown faces are to me not the least interesting, for with most of them there is a history of disobedience to parents, of homes forsaken, of morals ruined, and prospects blasted. Some of them I have seen writhe in agony during the singing of the sweet songs of the sanctuary, or the readings from the holy book, being thereby forcibly reminded of their happier days— the wanderings of one of these last characters constitutes the substance of this narrative. At one of our services during the past year, amongst the brown faces there, was one evidently young. Judging from her appearance, she might be about twenty years of age. Everything about her indicated that she was a wanderer, and during the singing of the first hymn, she sat down on the form and buried her weeping face in a part of her torn dress. I have witnessed many such sights as this, and I often feel that I could weep with them. I have only to suppose myself in their condition, or imagine them to be my own sisters or brothers or children, and by thus bringing it home can enter into their feelings. As I expected, the weeper sought me out after the service. I provided her a little food and a night's lodging, and I next saw her seated on a step in Drake Street, waiting my coming to my office. Poor thing! Her feet were so swollen and sore she could scarcely move and it was with difficulty that she could walk into my room. She evidently thought I might be her friend, and voluntarily gave me much of her history. On asking her how old she was, she replied, A little over twenty years, sir. Have you a father and a mother living? I asked. Yes, sir, both. This question greatly distressed her. "'Have you sisters and brothers?' "'Yes, sir, four, all younger than myself.' "'How long have you been from home, my girl?' 
Going on towards two years, sir, was her answer. Have you ever written to your parents to tell them you are alive? No, sir, I durst not. I have often thought I would, but when I tried I felt sick. I have so disgraced both them and myself that I dare neither go home nor write to them. Have you attended the Sunday school? Yes, sir, weeping, and I have had two Bibles and a church service given to me by my teacher for good conduct. And whatever made you leave home, my girl, were your parents not kind to you? Oh, yes, sir, my parents were very good to me. We all attended a place of worship, and many times when we have been all going to school on a Sunday morning, father and mother watched us off and seemed so pleased to see us all so nice going to a place of worship. Then why did you not remain at home, my child? Well, sir... Two neighboring girls were often talking about wishing to see strange places and other towns, and we began daring each other about setting out. On one of our wakes we got all our better clothes, putting on as many as we could, and ran away, intending to get work at various places for a short time, and then go on further. We had each a few shillings with us, we thought we should like to see Liverpool, but before we got to Liverpool our money was all spent, though we walked all the way to save it. And what did you do in Liverpool without money? Did you get work? No, sir, we each pawned part of our clothing, and the eldest girl persuaded us to go to the theatre. I never was in such a place before, and I felt very miserable. All the young men and young women seemed to be very wicked. After the play there was a ball. The wickedness of the ball was greater than at the theatre. I was miserable at both. I trembled and felt as if I should faint. The oldest girl laughed at me and got me some spirits to drink. I never knew how I got to the place where we lodged. When I awoke in the morning... I was on a miserable bed in a dirty room. The other girls were still sleeping on the floor. Oh, how I wept that morning and felt that I would give all the world if I was but at home again. How long did you remain in Liverpool? Several weeks. We pawned everything off our backs that would fetch anything. We could not get work, and we did not care. Every night, if we could raise the money or get anyone to pay for us, we went to the theatre. I was so wretched, I did not care what I did, if it would smother my thoughts. One night, the elder girl went out, and it was very late when she came back. She had got some money and seemed very excited. In the morning she hurried us off out of the town, and we began tramping towards Fleetwood— but the money was soon gone, for we got drunk almost every day. Sometimes we lodged in night-houses, sometimes in lodging-houses, and sometimes under the hedges. When we got to Fleetwood, we were more wicked than we had been at Liverpool. 
we were in a gin palace one night when a terrible fight took place. One man fell down at my feet with his head cut open. We thought he was murdered. The police came, and we ran into the fields. It was very dark, and we agreed to stop in the field all night and leave the town before daylight. I shall never forget that night. We felt very frightened, for though we had nothing to do with the fight, we thought if the man was dead, they would take us. We huddled all together under some holly trees in a dry ditch and wished we were home. We all cried, but when it began to rain large drops, followed by lightning and thunder, we clasped hold of each other and began to pray to God to have mercy upon us. I never expected to see morning, for I thought God would strike me dead for my wickedness. I called on my father and mother and my sisters and brothers by name. I was near going mad. After the thunder and lightning were over, it still rained, and we were all soaking with wet. I fell into a short, troubled sleep, and thought I felt my little sister's arms around my neck. When at home, I always taught her to say her prayers. She knelt on my knee with her arms around my neck, and finished by saying, Jesus, gentle shepherd, hear me. Bless thy little lamb to-night. In the darkness be thou near me. Keep me safe till morning light. Oh, how happy I felt in my dream! But when I awoke and found no little arm or sweet little voice, but that I was almost drowned, stiff with cold, and two hundred miles away from home, I had a wish to die on the spot, though I knew my soul would be lost, but I was in despair. How long had you been from home then? I asked. About nine months, sir. And how could you bear to think of the dreadful suffering of your parents on your account all this time? I knew they were suffering, but I durst not write or go home. I often imagined my father seeking me, and my mother lying awake, weeping, and wondering where I was. Yet I durst not let them know. After leaving Fleetwood, we set out on tramp for Scotland, begging our way, and as before, sleeping in all sorts of places. We were some time in Glasgow, living very wicked lives. We visited other towns, and rambled on until we came to Hull. All the way we travelled, I felt a poor, degraded creature, especially on the Sunday, when I saw other young women going to church or chapel. I thought they were as happy as angels. When near Hull, I began to feel worn down, and was not able to walk many miles a day. I well remember sitting by a clear stream of water one warm day, and wishing I was at the bottom. My feet were swollen and bleeding, and I had been a long time without food. As I was looking into the river, I began to feel a strong desire to drown myself. I wept bitterly over my past conduct, 
and prayed for pardon before I jumped into the water so that I might go to heaven, but still I feared going to hell. I felt it would be a long, sad thing if my soul was lost. Still, I wished to drown myself. Just then I again felt my little sister's arms around my neck, and again heard her say the prayer I had taught her, Jesus, gentle shepherd, hear me. I then began to weep as if my heart would break, and knelt down asking God to have mercy on me and guide me home. Over my head was a large bird singing, and it seemed to say, Stop! Another trial. Stop! Another trial. I rose up and walked away from the river and followed the other girls who had gone on before. When I overtook them, they asked me why I was crying. I told them my feet were sore and I was weary, but I did not tell them of my thoughts about destroying myself. When we got to Hull I fell sick and was taken to the Union from the night asylum. Here I remained on a sickbed, suffering and weeping, and promising the Lord if he would spare me I would return home and lead a new life. While I was in the Union my two companions were in the town, living by picking pockets or any other way they could, and were waiting for me the day I came out. We went again on tramp to Sheffield, Boston, Manchester, Oldham, and Huddersfield. When at Huddersfield, a kind lady came into the lodging-house and talked with us. She seemed in great trouble on our account. She read to us out of one of your books about poor Mary, and gave us each one. I saw on the back of the book where you lived, and was determined to come to Rochdale to see if you could get me home. I did not tell the other girls, for fear they would not let me come, but set off without them, and I do not know where they are now. Well, my girl, yours is a sad story. You have seen the world with a vengeance. "'What do you wish me to do for you?' I asked. "'Write to my parents, sir. "'Ask them to take me home. "'Oh, I wish you would, and God will bless you,' was her reply. "'I did as she requested. "'I wrote to her parents, honestly stating the condition of the girl "'and her wish to return to her happy home.' After taking the letter to the post, I took Julia to Smith's lodging-house in King Street, the same place where Joseph died in the hen-coat, and requested Mrs. Smith to find her something to do and take charge of her until she heard from me again. Two days after, I received the following letter from her parents. Dear Sir, your information of my misguided and long-lost daughter 
has given a distracted family a little relief from the fear that something had happened to her. We all thought we should never see her or hear of her again. But thanks to God and your Christian benevolence, for which a distressed family will ever feel grateful. As to her return home, we shall be glad to receive her safe from your care. But our means at present prevent us from sending the expenses of the journey, as we have a large family of children, all unable to work. My health has been but poorly for a long time, and my dear wife has been very heavily afflicted in her mind through the non-knowledge of her lost child. But we shall, if you can by any means send her, be but too happy to receive her, and do the best we can for her amongst the rest of the children. Hoping that God will repay you, for we cannot at present, only with grateful feelings, and beg to remain your most humble and thankful servant. The above letter was signed by the father of Julia. On receiving it, I at once sent for Julia and read the letter. While reading it, and when I came to the part which speaks of her mother's mental illness, Julia roared out in agony, crying, Oh, mother, mother, dear mother, what have I done? Oh, how shocking to us all has been my first wrong step. Whatever must I do? Oh, my dear, dear parents, I have been bad to you, and now I am punished. Long poor Julia wept over her father's letter, and when I told her I would send her home the following day by rail, she seemed ready to lick the dust at my feet. Yes, thou poor wretched creature, the first wrong step has brought thee to a shocking state, and thousands besides thee. When the first wrong step is taken out of the path of duty, virtue, pleasantness, and peace, into the hard way of transgressors, it is a most awful step, entailing consequences to millions, so fearful that they are only really known to the lost in hell. How many are at this moment in our penal settlements, prisons, poorhouses, hospitals, and penitentiaries? How many with desolate homes, ruined characters, ruined constitutions, and ruined prospects, who can trace all to the first wrong step? If there be no first step, there will never be a second. Julia had suffered much, suffered in her conscience when she took the first step from home, the first step into the den of infamy called a theatre, and the whirlpool of wickedness called a ball, suffered after being first drunk, suffered when she saw the almost murdered man fall at her feet in the gin palace, 
fearfully suffered the night of the terrible thunderstorm, drenched in rain in the dead of the night in a ditch. The only moment of happiness she mentions was when the arms of her little praying sister were around her neck, but it was only a dream, a dream of home happiness, from which the first wrong step had driven her. Yes, she had suffered, but what must have been the suffering of her parents and all the family? I have sometimes wished that the wrongdoer might be the only one to suffer, but it is often the most innocent, loving, and affectionate that have to endure the keenest anguish through the bad conduct of those of their own family and fireside. When I see mothers pressing their lovely little ones to their breast and covering them with kisses, I have often mentally prayed that they might always be able to kiss them and never wish they had not been born. The following day I had to attend a gathering of the mothers' meetings under the care of Mrs. Midwood of Hollingworth near Mottram and sent down to Smith's lodging-house requesting Julia to meet me at the railway station at half-past two. Poor old Mrs. Smith brought her, and on my arrival I found them waiting for me. On arriving at Manchester, I took a cab to the London Road terminus, but found she could not leave till a quarter past six, while my train left at a quarter past four. While talking with Julia at the station, I found her much troubled about how she might venture to go into the house when she arrived, and concluded it would be best to telegraph for someone to meet her. She stood beside me in the office, and when the message was read, saying, Julia will arrive by the half-past ten train from Manchester, please meet her, she sat down on a box and again wept bitterly. I felt concerned at not being able to see her off, and tried to interest the station-master in her behalf by showing him the letter from her father. He very kindly promised to see her right, and gave her in care of the guard on the line she had to travel. I bought her three cakes for the journey, and having got her to promise to write me the first moment she could on getting home, took her hand to bid her farewell, and prayed that God would pardon and bless her. Long the poor creature held my hand and sobbed out a farewell with many blessings. When the telegraph messenger ran to inform the parents that Julia would arrive by the half-past ten train, he produced great excitement in the neighbourhood but especially in the family. The little brothers and sisters laughed and cried and danced, and all begged they might go to meet her. The hours from five to ten o'clock seemed long hours, but when the time drew near, father, mother, and three of the children went with throbbing hearts to the station. The train was late, 
but at a quarter past eleven, the long absent child was locked in the wild embrace of ten fond arms, amid sobs and weeping. Poor Julia, she held down her head in shame. She felt a poor, guilty thing. She knew how ragged and wretched her appearance was, but, miserable and degraded as she was, she was welcome. The dead was alive again. The lost was found. On returning from my Saturday night and Sunday engagements, on the Monday morning, I found on my desk the following letter. Dear Sir, I write to let you know that we have received our daughter safe, and we will pray to God to keep her in the narrow path, and I hope God will bless you for what you have done for me and mine. And as soon as it is in my power, I will pay back to you what she has cost you. Both of the letters from Julia's father, as given above, are exact copies, with the exception of the name and residence, which I do not think it right to give, and I am sure my readers will see the prudence of withholding them. If this narrative of poor Julia's wanderings and sufferings shall be a warning to others— who, regardless of the sorrow and pain they inflict upon their parents and friends, are determined to see the world, my purpose will be answered. We are all tempted to do wrong, some more, some less, and let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Julia was tempted by two wicked companions to run from home, and she fell. I never see an old man or an old woman who has grown grey in the path of virtue, but I feel for them a deep veneration. But at the same time, I cannot help wondering whether their temptations have been as strong as those who have fallen by their side." Have they passed through the terrible tests that have overthrown their ruined brothers and sisters? Or have they had a firmer grasp of the hand of him who alone can keep us from falling? I believe an ounce of grace will go as far in some as a pound in others. The meek disciple John did not seem to need so much of his master's care as the rough, headlong, fiery Peter. But it is a consolation for some of us to know that the pound of grace for the Peter can be as easily obtained as the ounce of grace for the John. If Julia had taken notice of only two lines in that book given to her by her teacher for good conduct, those two lines... If sinners entice thee, consent thou not. She would not have had to carry a scar on her conscience all the days of her life. She left the school 
left her parents, left her little brothers and sisters, became a companion of fools. And however long she may live, it will be a sore place in her memory. It is a mercy she did not perish on that day of her strong temptation when she sat by the river. The thrush that was then singing in the trees over her head did not say, Stop another trial, stop another trial, but she thought it did, and the song of that bird was to her a song of mercy. Her little sister's arms were not really around her neck, but she felt as if they were. This was another check to preserve her from destruction. The poor wanderer was getting sick of sin, and the Lord was mercifully preserving her from destruction. I hope the lady who kindly spoke to Julia in the lodging-house at Huddersfield, urging her to give up her life of wickedness and return to her parents, will still visit those haunts of many a prodigal and lost one. One of them is now restored to her home, and her little sister's arms are again around her neck. May the gentle shepherd keep them both. Having recently to attend several meetings in the Midland counties, and one of them being in the town where Julia's parents resided, I was glad of the opportunity to call and see them. I easily found the place, for I had the two letters from the father with me. The door was open, and Julia, in amazement, called out my name. My presence was hailed with words of thankfulness and with swimming eyes. Julia was greatly changed. Her appearance was now neat and respectable, and she had got back her own natural complexion instead of the wanderer's brown face. But she will never forget that first wrong 